0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Worship Woodburn Baptist Church. My name is Harris. I am pastor. Good to see you all today. God bless you. Matthew chapter 18 is where we will be this morning. In the middle of a sermon series entitled Forever Young. Last week, we talked a lot about teenage years. Today, I want us to talk about childhood years. Sermon entitled Normal Children Don't Act That Way Very Often. You get it? Normal children don't act normal very often. And that is normal. That's absolutely normal to be acting not normal. I remember being in church. So just like your kids, I was over the pew, under the pew, around the pew. I would open the handle. I would flip through the pages. I would look at the gum underneath the the pews. I would pull out the offering envelopes and I would pledge millions of dollars to the building fund. And some of your kids have done the same thing. We're holding you to it, by the way. I know Dax Ren pledged over a million dollars one Sunday. Uh, Lots and lots of zeros. Uh, That's so exciting. I I, I love, love every minute of that. When I was a kid growing up in a little Baptist church, when I was just tall enough to make it right, when everybody else would stand and and we would sing, I would put my mouth on the pew. Did any of you ever do that? Because your kids do. Watch them. During the invitation, especially if you watch, little kids will put their mouths on the pew and taste it and suck on it. Y'all ever remember doing that? Anybody else do that? Y'all act like you didn't. Remember what it tasted like? Salt. It tastes like salt. Do you know why? Yeah, cause everybody with their swine flu hands are hanging on, <laughs> hanging on the back of the pew. Yeah. Oh, I used to suck on the back of the pew, suck on that rim there where everybody's hands are for a hundred years and it would taste like salt. Amazingly, that's what church still tastes like to me. The, the, the sweat of the saints, I suppose, <laughs> is what church tastes like. I remember one day coming into church with new boots on. You ever remember that? Having new shoes? I would walk in and I'd stand like this. You know, just so the adults would notice, and somebody would say, "Wow, Tim, the little Tim, you got new boots on." They were dingo boots. Remember dingo boots? They were so awesome. I wanted them so bad. Mom, Dad got them for me at Big K. Big K dingo boots. I wore them to church. I tucked my jeans inside my boots because that's how uh, on Wild Wild West that, that's how Jim always wore his boots. I would tuck my my jeans in my boots. I was such a dude, such a dude in church. It was a Sunday night, the first time I wore my dingo boots and with my jeans tucked in. I remember standing in, 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 in the pew next to my father, and, and somewhere along the way, I had to go to the bathroom really bad. Do you remember needing to go to the bathroom in, in church when you were a kid? My dad was one of those go-at-home men, used-to-go-at-home people, and so my dad wouldn't let me go. I said, Daddy, I need to go to the bathroom, and he said, No, you don't. No, he's going to argue with my bladder. He said, no, you don't. So I thought, I guess I don't. I, I stood there the longest time. I started standing. I said, Daddy, I can't hold it. He said, yes, you can. Yeah. Oh, he did not know. He did not understand. So I'm standing there. It was invitation time now. I'm still standing. I have to go to the bathroom. So bad. So bad. Got my jeans tucked in my dingo, but I know where this is going. So bad. I said, daddy, I've got to go. He said, no, you don't. So I'm standing there thinking, oh, please, Jesus, please, please let them stop. They sang every verse of just as I am. And on verse six, when they said, oh, lamb of God, I come, I come. I went. I went. I did. I, I, I peed my pants. I'm sorry to tell you all that in church. I did. But the thing is, remember, I had my jeans tucked in brand new dingo boots. So where did it all go? I filled them up. (laughs) Brand new dingo boots. I filled them up. It was so horrible, so horrible. And it was a cold night. I I went outside after church. I was so ashamed. I mean, I I wet my pants. So I I, I went outside and I got in the car. We drove a little orange Volkswagen. I got in the car with my dingo, dingo boots still full. I got in the car and I sat and I just cried and cried and cried. People were coming out of church. They'd walk by the car and look in at me. And I would get way down in the seat and try to hide. My parents, my grandma lived right next to the church. My parents came and looked in the car window, went on to grandma's. They had supper and and, and left me in the car. When they got back in the car, they said, what are you doing in the car? And then I told them the whole story. I wanted my dad to feel so bad, so bad. I cried and cried and those boots were never the same. Do you remember being a kid? Do you remember being in that place where you have no say? Somebody can tell you whether you need to go or not. They can tell you to hold it. Do you remember that? Do you remember loose teeth and and macaroni and cheese? Do you remember Saturday morning cartoons? Do you remember all of this? Because you need to understand that Scripture knows all about that. Scripture knows all about what it is to be a child and actually Jesus has some very surprising things to say about what it means to be a child. Matthew chapter 18 is where we begin this morning. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. The disciples come to Jesus with a question, a burning question for them. Uh, read closely. You help me decide whether or not Jesus answers the question. This is amazing. Important words for us as individuals, as grown-ups, and especially as the church. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What kind of question is that? Verse 2. Jesus called a little child to himself and put the child among them. Then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins, the word there is change, be converted. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Did he answer their question? Verse 4. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. What sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin? Temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? So if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand or one foot than to be thrown into eternal fire with both of your hands and feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly Father. Interesting. They're at the end of verse 10 there, that's one of the only references to what we might call guardian angels. Their angels, always in the presence of my heavenly Father. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out to search for the one that is lost? If he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than over the 99 that didn't wander away. In the same way, it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. Last few years, a really interesting archaeological dig going on at an ancient city called Ashkelon. Ashkelon is in the old promised land, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. And Ashkelon is now being uh, under very serious study, archaeological survey, that they're digging the place up. And they're now to the level, to the place where it, things would have been it, as the children of Israel came in from Egypt, began to take over the promised land. You remember, they were taking over the land of Canaan and driving out the Canaanites. Well, we're beginning to find out a little bit more about the Canaanites, the people who were in the land of promise that God gave to Israel. The city is called Ashkelon. Google it. Amazing thing about Ashkelon, that they're finding these calves, these little calf gods. We read in the Bible about the god Baal, and how they worship the god Baal, and how the children of Israel came down, remember, after they left Egypt, and they themselves made a golden calf. It was Baal. And in Ashkelon, they're finding those calf gods, those calves made for worship, worshiping the god Baal. They're finding those. It's interesting. But that's not all they're finding. As they dig in Ashkelon, you need to understand they're finding babies, children, lots of them, corpses. They sacrificed children. You realize that? That they killed them routinely. In one place in ancient Ashkelon, they found what would have been the city sewer and they found in that sewer over 100 remains of little baby boys. They threw boys away with the garbage. 100 in one place. In Ashland, they have uncovered the ruins of an ancient house, a very nice house. But in the cornerstone of the house, which means while they were building the house, do you know what that family did? They buried their baby alive in the cornerstone. Why would they do that? Why would they bury their baby? They buried it as a sacrifice, a thanksgiving to the God Baal for letting them have the prosperity to build a house. They sacrificed their baby in celebration of their new house. Isn't that horrible, amazing? It puts some things in perspective because when God brought his people into that land and said, drive out the Canaanites, drive out these people, he continued to say to them, I want you to be different. I want you to be set apart from the nations. I want you to have nothing to do with, with these who worship other gods, have nothing to do with the Canaanites, have nothing to do with their worship, and you really need to understand why. It has something to do with children. Children. It has something to do with what God wanted to make His people different in all of the world. What would that difference be? What was part of that difference? Look at this. One of the most important verses in all the Old Testament. One of the foundational verses for God's people, Israel, from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4. Is it going to come up, guys? Can you help me? Deuteronomy. Help me out. Listen to what it says. Listen, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Verse 7, say this with me. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, and when you're getting up. You may read right past those verses. It may not mean much to you, but you've got to understand what it meant in the ancient world. You've got to understand what it means for Israel. You've got to understand the value placed on children when the Bible says this, in a day and age when children were routinely sacrificed, slaughtered, thrown out with the garbage... In God's family, among God's people, God says you're going to be different from the nations. And this is one of the ways you're going to be different. You're going to understand what your children are worth. You're going to understand the value that I, the Lord, place on a single child's life. You're going to be different from all of the world, different from the nations, because you're not going to kill your children. You're not going to throw them away. You're going to love them, value them, and you're going to teach them. You're going to teach them about me. Isn't that amazing? In all of the world, one of the things that God reveals early to his people are what the children are were. It's still that way, brothers and sisters. You've got to understand that. It's still that way. God still loves the children, all the children of the world. But I'm afraid that we live in a day and age when children aren't quite as valued as God would have them valued. We're getting back to a place where no longer do people understand what a child is worth. One day, if the Lord were to tarry and they were to be doing archaeological digs in what we now call the United States... Unfortunately, they'll never find the remains of all of the babies we've aborted. Do you understand that? We live no trace. We live, leave absolutely no trace of those lives, those babies that were conceived and conceived in full view and in full knowledge of God who made them and loved them. We sacrifice babies routinely. Our nation, our culture, our world no longer understands what a child is worth. I absolutely despise that Burger King commercial these days, and some of you will know the one I'm talking about. They are selling french fries to children, and they are selling it with the most lewd and crude song that I've heard in a long time. And it's on television, and it involves Spongebob. Do you not understand how very perverted our world has become? You're selling Happy Meals to kids with a sexually lewd song, and nobody seems to have any problems with it. I have a problem with it. I think God has a problem with the way our nation continues to pervert children. Our nation continues to devalue children. God said, I want you to be different, different from all of the nations. You're my people. You need to teach your children, love your children. Let your children come to me, teach them day and night. Remember my teachings, follow them wholeheartedly. And you talk about them all the time with your children. God loves your children that much. Obviously, God loves your children more than you do. One day, the disciples come to Jesus with a question. It's a burning question for them. Their question is, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's their question. Honestly, you and I are smart enough. If they're asking that question, the real question they're asking is, Which one of us is the greatest? That's what they want to know. Which one of us is the greatest? you you got to recognize these guys think about this all the time. This is their burning question. I, I mean, there are all kinds of things they could ask Jesus. He's the Son of God in the flesh. They could ask Him about the dinosaurs. They could ask Him about the speed of light. They could ask Him where Cain got his wife. But what do they want to know? Which one of us is the greatest? In heaven, which one of us is the greatest? Does Jesus answer their question? It's interesting because Jesus does an amazing thing. It's almost like a children's sermon that we do on Sunday morning where you take an object and you you bring the object in and you teach everybody. You you bring some sort of lesson by having them think about this this object. Well, Jesus' object that day is a child. He brings a child over to himself and stands the child there. And understand, the child never says a word. Just obediently, silently The child just stands there. And Jesus says, unless you are changed to become like this child, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. I ask you again, did he answer their question? Does that answer their question? Honestly, what he does is so amazing and so very cool. This is Jesus. I love him. Because what he really says is, unless you are converted, unless you change and become like a child, you will never get to heaven. So it won't matter who's greatest. You'll never know. You'll never know the difference because you're never going to go there unless you are converted. Unless you're changed to be like this child. That doesn't exactly answer their question, but isn't that magnificent? We're talking about the importance of change, the importance of conversion, the very necessity of salvation. And Jesus takes this moment to say, unless you are saved, unless you are changed, converted, unless you turn from your old life and become something brand new, you will never see heaven. Do you understand, that message hasn't changed. It's still the very same thing. It's the message for every one of us, all of us as children, all of us as grown-ups. You must be born again. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. It's what Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 18. It's what Scripture says from Genesis to Revelation. You must be born again. Something must happen to you, and you can't do it by yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't change yourself. Jesus says, unless you are converted, unless someone converts you to become like this child, you will never see heaven. You have no hope of heaven outside of something supernatural happening to you. It's a change, a radical change. I'm afraid people never get this message. They never seem to understand this. That heaven is only going to be inhabited by those who are converted, those who are changed by the power of God. You have to submit to the working of God in your life so that you are truly converted, truly changed. This is not the same thing as walking the aisle at some point when you're four, five, six years old and, and, and having an experience at the front of the church. That's not what Jesus says. Unfortunately, that's what a lot of people think. They take this false security in the fact that they have always gone to church or false security in the fact that they were baptized when they were a baby. Some sort of false security in the fact that they shook a a, a pastor's hand and have some vague memory. Maybe I was baptized. Maybe I wasn't baptized. Don't you understand? It's not vague in Scripture. Unless you are converted, unless you're changed, there's no way you could not know if it happens or not. It's radical. There is a new creation. You used to be this way. Now you are are this way. There is a complete 180 degree revolution in your life. You are converted. Changed. There will be a difference in your life. No question about it. You won't have to wait to judgment day to find out. You should know right now if this change has taken place in your life. It's a radical change. It's a supernatural change. It's what we call salvation. It involves a turning, a deliberate turning. That's why other people can't do it for you. It's why your parents can't walk you down the aisle and have you get saved. It's something you must choose for yourself. It's deliberate. You make a deliberate decision to turn from your sin, to leave your old way of life, and to follow Jesus. Unless you are converted, unless you are changed, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. Sure, he does. But he's pointing to something else. The first thing he mentions is humility. There's something humble about a child. Something about a child who would never ask the kind of question the disciples are asking. Children aren't concerned about greatness because children know they're not great. They understand that as far as the world goes, they are low on the totem pole. They're kids. They're they're just kids. They're kids. They're shorter than everybody else. They're weaker than everybody else. If you want to go to the bathroom, somebody can tell you to hold it. You're, You're a kid. There's a humility that goes with it and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to be absolutely dependent upon someone else. Not to be afraid to ask for what you need because you have no way of getting it on your own. Children are beautiful in their humility. They're humble. They're lowly. They don't think too much of themselves because there's no way to think very much of yourself when you are a kid. Jesus says that kind of humility is what I'm looking for. When, when salvation begins to convert you, that humility will begin to take root in your heart. You won't think so much of yourself either. You won't be so consumed with status and control and, and power. You won't be too proud to ask for forgiveness and to confess your sins. You'll be more childlike, more humble. Kids are humble. Kids are also ready to believe. Kids believe very easily. You tell them about God, it's as if they are born hardwired to believe and to know and to love him. Kids are beautiful in the easy way they believe. Four year old boy named Callum was eating breakfast with his mama, drinking his milk out of a cup. He said, Mama, is God real? Mama said, Yes, Callum, of course God is real. Callum said, Where is God? Mama said, Callum, God's everywhere, He's just everywhere. Is he in our house? Yeah, Callum, he's in our house. Is he in my room? Of course, Callum, he's in your room. Is he in this kitchen? Yes, Callum, God is everywhere, Callum says. Is he in my cup? Mom said, well, Callum, yeah, I suppose God's in your cup. Callum said, got him. Got him. is that amazing? So easy to believe, so literally to believe. Take a look at the prayer at the top of your worship guide this morning. This is a real life prayer of a little boy named Frankie, age 11. I love this. I don't know if prayer gets any better than this. Jesus, I feel very near to you. I feel like you're beside me all the time. Please be with me on Thursday. I'm running a three-mile race then. I will need all the speed in the world. If you're not busy with other things, maybe you could be at the starting line the finish line, and everywhere in between. Wow. Can you pray any better than that? Does it get any better than that? kids are ready to believe. They believe quickly. They believe easily. They love God. They long to know Him. They take to faith very, very quickly. With grown-ups, everything gets complicated. Jesus says, if you want to see heaven, if you want to become a Christian, you've got to have that, that kind of faith that a child has. Very, very small, but very, very powerful. Kids are ready to believe. And they're Kids are innocent, innocent of of sin. And it's beautiful. It doesn't last long, but they're just innocent. I heard a mama this week talking about her son who's older now, but when he was a kid, they were at Friendly Furniture in Franklin. And all of a sudden, this little bitty kid, little bitty church kid, comes out with a with a wordy dirt. You know what I mean? He says a really bad word, not just any bad word. He says the mother of all bad words. In Friendly Furniture. And the mother just, you know, looks over and says, don't say that, don't ever say that. But as soon as she says, don't say that, what's the kid do? Say it over and over in friendly furniture. Saying bad words, a little bitty kid. I mean, it's horrible, but it's also a little bit funny. Why is it a little funny? Because he didn't know one word from another. Now, mama knew. Mama nearly had to be hospitalized. But the little boy doesn't know. that There's this time in your life... When you just don't know. You don't know any better. You're innocent. You, You do bad things. You do silly things, foolish things. But everybody recognizes that you're just a child. You don't know. You just don't know. There's a time at which you know exactly what words you're using. There's a time after which you know exactly the difference between a truth and a lie. And it happens pretty early, doesn't it? There's a time at which you know exactly what mom or dad said for you to do, and you do the opposite, and you know that you're doing the opposite. see, children are innocent, and that innocence is beautiful, but that innocence doesn't last. In any of our lives, it does not last. Before long, it's very, very obvious that we are sinners. Every single one of us sinners, not innocent any longer, and there's no way to get back to that on our own. We can never recover that innocence. We make a mess of our lives and we do it early. We become sinners very, very early. And after that point, there is no hope for us outside of Christ. Absolutely no hope. Not even for children. Stop right here for a moment. I want us to talk about children and how children become Christians. I think it's something that as a church we really need to understand. I want you to understand what our church teaches and what we believe as as Baptists. Because Baptists are different when it comes to how children come into the family of God. As you know, we don't baptize our babies. It's part of what makes us different from nearly every other Christian denomination. We don't baptize babies. We simply don't. Because for one thing, a very obvious thing, we don't believe that salvation is something that you can do for your children. We simply do not believe that that's something that the church can do. Even with all the love and and all of the grace in our hearts, you can't make a decision for somebody else that they will be a Christian. That's why we don't baptize babies. That baby can't choose to be baptized. That baby can't choose to follow Christ. That baby knows nothing about sin or the church or anything else. Baptists rejected a long time ago the idea that we would baptize babies. As Baptists, we look very closely at at Scripture, and we come to talk about what we tend to call the age of accountability the age of accountability. In other words, in every single child's life, there's a moment or a, or a season of time when that child begins to understand. And it happens quite early with some children. It happens later with others. Every kid is different. But there will be some point in that kid's life and that kid begins to understand something. That kid will begin to have that sense that there's something wrong with me. I need the Lord in, in, in some very important way. I need to be saved. Children who grow up in the faith will reach that age when they can know right from wrong. And that's the point when they can begin to understand that they are sinner. It happens with every one of us. But we as Baptists, and at Woodburn Baptist Church, we respect that in a child's life. We respect that when they're born, they're born innocent. They haven't sinned. God would not hold them responsible for sin when they can't know what they're doing. They're innocent. But that innocence is soon lost. And when that child becomes able to know the difference, then that child becomes accountable for her sin, for his sin. And at that point, that child, my friends, is lost, lost, and needs to be saved. It's different with every child. With some children, it happens very early. And as pastor, often I get to sit down and and, and talk to your children. Realize when you bring your child to me for the first time, we're not likely to rush it and baptize her right then. I like to sometimes let that take a while, because I do believe it does take a while. It takes a long time for a child to really recognize the Holy Spirit working in his heart. It takes a long time for a child to begin to really understand that they sin, that they really, really sin. And that knowledge of sin is sometimes the very last thing that snaps into place. We have to be very careful with this as a church. Very, very careful how we bring our children along. I don't think there's a reason to rush them. And I think sometimes as parents, we get in a hurry, kind of like the same way that you want to push them into third grade before they're out of second grade. Some parents would love to have their children baptized, you know, right after they can learn to say the word duck. That they would love to have them in the baptism saying, this takes some time. We don't have to push and rush. There is a season of grace over our children as they grow to learn and understand. I personally was saved at the age of six years old. It was first at the age of four years old in Bible school when I really began to understand this tension in my life. I had always been taught that God loved me, and I knew God loved me. But at the same time, I became aware of this separation from God. There was something separating, and I became aware of that at four years old. Other four-year-olds can do the same thing sometimes. I just recognized that, that I was a sinner, and I would feel very guilty for the things that I would do. Now, the things I did seemed very small. They were childish kinds of sins, but they were still sin. And I carried the guilt for it. I remember going to a, a woman who was my Bible school teacher when I was four years old, and I said, I want to become a Christian. I want to be saved. And she said, you're too young. Just like that, but very kindly, politely, you're too young. Oh, I was crushed. I was so angry. I pointed my finger in her face, which is probably a sin too. Pointed my finger in her face and said, I'll do it when I'm six. And I did. I, I did. Got saved when I was six. I don't know how old your child will be when she reaches that age, when he reaches that age. I do know that salvation is the Lord's work. It's not ours. The best thing we can do is teach them. And don't think you teach them just by bringing them to church. As the scriptures say, you've got to talk about it when you're at home, when you're getting up, when you're laying down, when you're on the road for vacation. You've always got to be teaching your children, always teaching them. Because in the process of teaching them, sooner or later they'll get it. And in their own time. They'll accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They have to be born again like everybody else. But with a child, it takes some time. We can give it some time. There's grace for our children until they reach that age of accountability. But then notice what Jesus says past that. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who trust in me to stumble. Isn't that amazing? Jesus talks about these young believers, children, any of these little ones who trust in me, woe to the one who causes them to stumble. The fact of the matter is, when I go out in the community and I talk to people and I talk about the gospel or invite people to church, I very, very frequently run into people who just live like hell. They live like the devil out there, but they'll tell me, oh, "I got saved. I got saved when I was seven years old. I got saved when I was five years old. I was baptized down in Massie's Mill." That's what they'll tell me when I was five years old. But this is a person who lives like the devil and has lived like that ever since. Apparently, they came out of the water at Massie's Mill. Do you know what I'm saying? And I have a real problem with that. It is not my place to judge. I am not the one to judge. But I see very clearly what Jesus says. That unless you are converted, unless you're changed, unless there is a change, you have no hope of heaven. If you are a Christian, you will live like a Christian. You will walk like a Christian. You will talk like a Christian. You'll watch TV like a Christian. You'll go on dates like a Christian. You'll be a Christian husband. You'll live like a Christian wife. I'm saying that being a Christian makes a difference. And if there is no difference in your life, I would really want to argue, I'd really want to ask you, are you sure that whatever happened to you at the age of six, are you sure that was genuine? Because Scripture says there's a change. Christians are different. Christians don't live like the world. Christians don't talk like the world. If there's been no change, I would wonder if you're not some sort of false convert. Because Scripture talks about that too. Lots of people think they're Christians. They take some false security and some sort of experience way back in the past. But salvation is an ongoing life of discipleship by which we are converted to be like Christ. Is that happening for you? Is that happening for children who grow up in our church to know the Lord? Because there's something profoundly wrong in a church's life when young people are saved and baptized, but then they disappear and you never see them again. There's something wrong. With little ones who trust Jesus, but then they stumble. They step off the path. They never really become genuine disciples. There's something wrong with that, Jesus says. And woe to the one who causes a little one to stumble. Those are harsh words for a church. you not understand that? It's not enough just to bring your children in and baptize them. I had a lady one time, she's not here, I haven't seen her in years, and no kidding though, this is exactly what she said. She came to me and she said, Pastor, I'm thinking about having my children done. Having my children done. It sounds like a mob hit. I want to have my children done. I said, man, I'm not sure I know what you mean. You know, in the big tub. That's what she said. What was she asking me? I want to have my children children done. This is a woman who never had come to church and hasn't been to church since, but she wanted to have her children done. It doesn't work that way. Woe to the person who thinks it works that way. Children are to be raised in the faith. They are to come to know Jesus. They are to be converted. And we need to make sure that we preach the gospel to our children in such a way where they become lifelong true believers, true converts, a life of discipleship. They become grown-up members of God's family. That's our goal. We have to welcome them into the church. We have to welcome them into God's family. We have to share the gospel with them in ways that they can understand and respond to. Then we have to teach them over and over, day after day, week by week, Sunday by Sunday. They have to grow to know more and more about Jesus. If we don't teach them, they stumble. And woe to the church that causes little ones to stumble. We have to make room for them in worship. I know sometimes our kids make noise. I want you to know right now, they don't bother me. I know sometimes they bother you, but they don't bother me. I want children in church. Our church made a decision a long time ago that we would not put the children in a back room and have some sort of children's church. They belong with the family of God. It's okay if children make noise here. They say that little Joniel Neal balance. Where's Joe Neal? Is Joniel Neal here in the service? He's in the preschool welcome center. He can see and hear me. When Joe Neal was a little boy, they say that if he had new shoes on, he would stretch out on the pew and stick his feet straight up in the air. He's our chairman of deacons now. But he used to sit there and put his feet straight up in the air. Was that distracting? I'm sure it was. I'm sure other people were entertained by it. But I'm telling you, that little boy laying on the pew with his feet sticking straight up in the air, was he listening to the sermon? I I don't know. Was he praying? I I don't know. But one way or the other, that little boy was learning to become a man of God. He's our chairman of deacons now. Do you understand that? That that's how they learn. Have parents say, Brother Tim, we would come to church, but you don't understand. My three-year-old, she is just wild. She's like an orangutan. And I can't bring her to church. She'll tear that place down. Bring her. Please bring her. That's how they learn. That's how all the little orangutans learn. I understand. They learn by coming. They learn by sitting. And it's hard to sit still. I understand. It's very, very difficult. And it wears parents out. When Wade was small in the old building, Casey had a special pew that went all the way to the wall so she could wrangle him. He couldn't get out and she would wrangle him. And there were times I'd be preaching, preaching my heart out, and I would watch her grab him up by the skin of the neck and take him out the door. And once, lots of times she'd take him out, you know, spank him, they'd come back. One time she went all the way out the front door and home to the parsonage. I didn't know if I would have a son when I got home. I don't know what that was about, but they went all the way outside. They went home, home. It's how they learn. We have to make a place for them in worship. They belong here. Worship is not for adults. Children are not in the way so adults can worship. I'm telling you, this is how they learn to worship. We make room for them here. We make room for them in the pews. We make room for them in in, in the preaching. We make room for them in the music. We have to welcome the children. Very important quote I want to leave you with heard one person say, Christianity is always one generation away from extinction. Christianity is always one generation away from extinction. Understand what that means? It means if we don't welcome the children, if our children don't become genuine believers... In one generation away, that there could be no Christianity, no church anywhere. In, in practical terms, that means this church is always one generation away from closing the doors. You ever been to a church that had no young people? You can count on it. That church is going to be dead. That church will be dead. When the young people evacuate, there's no life there. About 10 funerals from now, they'll all be gone. Brothers and sisters, Jesus says, Welcome. The children, let them come to me. Anyone who welcomes one of these little ones is welcoming me, Jesus says. Jesus goes on to say, if you're going to know me at all, if you're going to come to me yourself, you're going to have to come to me more or less like a child. You're going to have to be born again yourself. You're going to have to be saved, converted, changed. Welcome the children, Jesus says, all of them. And while you're at it, if you're going to come to me yourself, you're going to have to change. Become like a child. Stop. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, how quickly we grow old. How quickly we lose our humility and pride takes its place. How quickly, Lord, we as older folks become so self-absorbed and we take no interest in the next generation. Help us, Lord. Help us to invite the children. Help us, Lord, to give this church away to them. Oh, Lord, I pray for those in this house who've had some sort of experience in the past that they call salvation, but there is no salvation. I pray for those, Lord, in this house who who claim to be converts and yet there's been no conversion. I pray for those who say they're Christians and yet there's been no turning away from sin. Lord Jesus, lift the blinders from blind eyes. Let those who have been deceived, Lord, understand the truth today that apart from salvation, apart from conversion, there is no hope of heaven. Lord Jesus, today, soften our hearts. Make us humble. Make us ready to believe once more. Forgive our sins and let us understand what innocence is once more by your grace. And Lord Jesus, I pray for all the little ones in this house. How much of what we say and sing and pray that they understand, we have no idea. But Lord, we know that salvation is your work, not our work. We will teach them, we will love them, we will pray for them. And Lord, in your time, you will save them. Holy Spirit, work within their lives, work within their hearts. Let us be living, breathing examples of godliness before them so that they can understand what they're being raised into. Oh Lord Jesus, make us all as children today and let us come to you.